1: Richard, did I ever tell you about the time I lost my wallet in Elon Musk's Dragon space capsule? You were
0: in a space capsule and you lost your wallet? Sounds like a good story.
1: And we're going to talk about that. In fact, this show is all about Elon Musk, his company SpaceX, and the future of spaceflight.
0: Liftoff with Eric Berger.
2: Elon Musk doesn't want to just send four astronauts to the surface of Mars, or six. He wants to send a settlement. He wants to have thousands of people living on the surface of Mars. This is the most exciting time to write about and think about space in my lifetime because there's so much activity at NASA, as well as in the private sector, as well as internationally with China. Europe, Russia, Japan, all doing pretty interesting things in space. In the United States, the commercial sector has been extraordinarily active. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it?
0: Jim, the early days of SpaceX, I'm reading all about it, and today the company is a powerhouse that has totally changed the aerospace industry. It invented reusable rockets, landed them on boats, but I had no idea what a risky, low-budget startup SpaceX actually was when it began.
1: Right. The idea that a small private company could build rockets and eventually launch cargo and even American astronauts for NASA was really revolutionary. And there were some big players in that business who wanted to shut them down.
0: So today we're going to talk with Eric Berger, the author of a brand new book, Liftoff, Elon Musk and the Desperate Early Days that Launched SpaceX. The book is out this week.
1: Eric is someone whose work I've been following for quite a few years. He was a science reporter at the Houston Chronicle, where he covered hurricanes and other interesting topics. He also did some work for Popular Mechanics when I was there. And now he's the senior space editor at the great science news site Ars Technica.
0: Eric joins us from Houston, Texas. Welcome to How Do We Fix It?
2: Hey, happy to be
0: here, guys. Thanks for having me on. Well, today, Elon Musk is the richest man in the world and a titan of at least two industries. But when he launched SpaceX
2: nearly 20 years ago, he wasn't that famous or that rich, was he? No, he was, he was just a mere multimillionaire um, back in 2002. <laughs> um, he had cleared about $180 million from the sale of PayPal um, and, then, and then was actually ousted from the board of directors. Um, after that. So he was looking around for something to do. And one of the things that he was interested in was space. And after he found out that NASA really didn't have a Mars program, and it would be difficult for him to go buy a rocket from from Russia, he thought he would see if he could do it. Um, but that $180 million, hardly
0: enough to launch a space giant,
2: right? Oh, absolutely. No, he put, he put about $100 million into SpaceX um, at the beginning. And that was enough to get them far enough along that they were ultimately able to get some NASA contracts, really critical ones in 2006 and 2008 that really set them on a path for for success.
1: And at the time, the aerospace business was dominated by these huge companies like Lockheed Martin and Boeing, thousands of employees, and they worked very, very closely with giant government agencies, NASA and also the Department of Defense. Why did uh, Elon Musk think that his little company could get a toehold in that business
2: yeah it really was impressive it'd be like you know walking down the streets of manhattan or something and look up the skyscrapers and those are kind of like the big aerospace companies these giants who had been around for decades had helped nasa and the department of defense you know launch every mission that they'd ever done and musk comes along and says well we're going to do that too and, and we don't have any government funding but it, you know that doesn't matter. One of the things that he was so disillusioned about back in 2001 and 2002 was was the Lockheeds and the Boeings and and the fact that you know they were still using decades old technology to get into space and the price of launch was not going down. It was actually going up over time. And so he, he thought that, well, what if we built our rockets in-house? And what if instead of trying to build a rocket with 10,000 people, we tried to do it with 200? And what if instead of using a $5,000 computer, we just use something off the shelf? And so that was the basic philosophy of trying to build a much lower cost rocket that was still capable of getting into orbit. And it's hard to emphasize too much what a revolutionary idea that was, that
0: that a startup company could actually be a major player in the space
2: race. That, that's exactly right some of the other companies that had tried to do the very same thing that SpaceX had done um similar people with visionary ideas but just didn't have the wherewithal the financial capital or the right people the right ideas to pull it off but yeah i mean the, the the air force the the large aerospace companies at the time would just scoff at these newcomers and think well here comes another one to to tilt at the windmill and you know they'll be gone in a
1: few years so they got their falcon 1 rocket built and their first launch was supposed to take place from uh, a base in the Marshall Islands in the middle of the Pacific, but they had a rocky start, didn't they?
2: They had a very rocky start. They they performed their first um, uh, their first engine firing, so a static fire test in, in May of 2005, and shortly after that, the Air Force and the National Reconnaissance Office basically told um, SpaceX and, and Musk that they were going to have to wait months and months and months for another mission to launch from vandenberg this launch site in california before they would get their chance and because spacex didn't have government contracts they weren't getting paid to build the falcon one they were just burning money and so that really prompted them to look elsewhere and the only other site that they had been working on was this small army base in the quadrillion atoll which is really far out in the central pacific if you were to fly from la to hawaii and then fly the same distance again you know further to the west you would end up in in toll and that's where they ended up launching the falcon 1 from i'm the only person on this podcast uh eric who
0: hasn't met elon musk <laughs> but i have read stories about him in the business press and he sounds not only like a visionary
2: but but pretty eccentric so what's he like he's very demanding <laughs> not, not... of of pretty much everyone around him um if you go to work for elon musk you had better expect to work very hard and 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 deliver um and in turn with him you're going to get the ability to do great things um i mean no other private company is landing rockets on boats no one's building a rocket that may one day go to mars um so you trade right you give your all to elon and he allows you to be part of something greater and in person you know he's he's an intimidating guy he's pretty tall he's like six two or six three um bigger and um and just you know kind of a, a no nonsense um it, it also depends on his mood i've been around him when he's been in a good mood and when he's in a bad mood um and when he's in a bad mood you know you you kind of want to hide in the corner And when he's in a good mood i mean he's he's hilarious he'll he'll tell a joke and then he'll you know people start laughing and then he'll kind of iterate or riff on that joke and and keep going and um he's really he's really very very funny um but you know he he expects he expects things to happen things to get done yeah yeah. And, and you'd better do it.
1: You mentioned the, the idea of landing the rocket stages on boats. And this was a big part of his early vision for bringing down the cost of space launch. Until Musk came along, we basically would build rockets and then throw them away with every launch. How does being able to bring the stages with their engines back down to Earth, how does that change the cost structure?
2: It's really changing transforming the entire industry you know before spacex came along if you were uh, nasa or the dod or an american satellite company you wanted to buy a u.s launch it, you know to get to 10 to 15 tons to lower Earth orbit was probably going to cost you at least 120 million dollars um spacex set the base price for the falcon 9 at 62 million um so about half that and the general thinking now is at least for SpaceX, the cost of getting that same payload orbit on a used booster, you can you can launch for about thirty million dollars. So you know they've they've cut the cost of launch in that sense by about seventy-five percent. So that's pretty significant. But you know from a broader perspective, they have really transformed the mindset of the launch, the vertical launch industry. You know it in 2016, so five years ago, it seemed ludicrous, ridiculous that you would be reusing the first stage of a rocket. No one really had done that. The space shuttle was reusable, but it was a different kind of architecture and, and reuse didn't really save a whole lot of money. Um, with, with the Falcon 9, there's been this complete transformation because now five years later, all of its competitors are studying reuse to one extent or another. The European Space Agency has a demonstration project China has several private companies looking to reuse. The government is looking at a reusable rocket. Japan is thinking about it. Russia is thinking about it. Um, United Launch Alliance is talking about recovering its engines. And of course, Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin is building its New Shepard and New Glenn vehicles to be reusable from the start.
1: This SpaceX was getting going. It was the waning days of the space shuttle. And I think I did a calculation one time that if all in that space shuttle program cost something like a $1.4 $1.4 billion a launch. And uh, so NASA was getting more expensive and slower. How did that create an opportunity for us to come in and provide an alternative?
2: SpaceX came along at a, at a fortuitous time in the sense that following the space shuttle Columbia disaster um, in the early 2000s.
1: That was the second uh, of the two space shuttle disasters. Uh, that was the one that exploded on re-entry over Texas.
2: Yeah, it, it broke apart coming in over Texas um, due to some damage to its heat shield. And NASA was looking around at how it was going to get its astronauts and, into the space in the future. And more immediately, they were looking at ways to resupply the International Space Station. So basically, they were they were considering post-shuttle plans. Um, and administrator at the time was named Mike Griffin, and he thought that private companies might be up for the opportunity to fly supplies to the International Space Station. Those were the seeds of the commercial cargo program. And so SpaceX was coming along just far enough in the mid 2000s with the Falcon 1 rocket, they hadn't gotten to orbit yet, that they they were seen as a viable bidder for those services. and as a matter of fact, it was Musk's decision to protest the original award of that contract to a company called Kistler that ultimately would save the day because NASA would pull back that contract, competitively bid it, and SpaceX would win one of those two awards. Um, and that would give them their crew con- cargo contract in 2006 and 2008 and ultimately lead to astronauts and their launch um, last year for the first time.
1: When we say private space, I mean, Boeing and Lockheed are private companies, but when they build something for NASA, they do it in a completely different way than when NASA contracts with with SpaceX to actually uh, fly the mission for it. How does that work? The
2: way it always used to work is NASA or the U.S. military would decide they wanted some service in space and they would put out a bid and and Northrop and Boeing and Lockheed and and... Other companies would come up with bids and would say, you know, we'll build this for two and a half billion. Where SpaceX innovated and where other companies have done since then is they said, we think the market needs this thing. And for SpaceX, that was the Falcon 1 rocket. We think there's a viable commercial market for a small satellite launcher that only costs $6 million for launch. And so the government didn't pay them for that. SpaceX said, we'll build the rocket and then we'll sell you launch contracts. This is not NASA giving SpaceX $2 billion a year to build a large rocket. This is SpaceX self-investing in the large rocket. And they figure once it's developed, the government customers, in addition to commercial customers, will be there to pay them back for their expenses.
0: I'm fascinated by the, the origin story that you tell. Um, in the years that SpaceX was just getting going, NASA was bogged down in the early 2000s. Tell us what was going on at NASA
2: during the last days of the space shuttle. NASA kind of, as the space shuttle wound down, was looking for a replacement for getting their own people into space. And they were also trying to counter this narrative that with the end of the space shuttle program, the country's space program was shutting down, right? That was the end of NASA because that was the most visible manifestation. and, and that obviously wasn't the case. Um, and so there was this really interesting dynamic where NASA was figuring out not only how to keep the International Space Station supplied, but also what their post-space shuttle future would look like. And ultimately, primarily led by Congress, you know, it led to NASA developing the, um, the Orion spacecraft for deep space transport, and then the large Space Launch System rocket that would launch it. Um, and since 2011 nasa has been struggling to build this large sls rocket and at the same time they've been funding spacex who is who who is providing the services for much less than other bidders the cargo and astronaut services to the space station but those funds are also allowing spacex to invest in the falcon heavy and the starship launch vehicle and both of those are going to compete directly with the space launch system And as SpaceX becomes more efficient with what they do in launch, it makes the NASA program look worse. SpaceX is both a contractor for NASA as well as a competitor. And SpaceX and some other private companies um, are much better at building rockets than NASA was in the olden ways. And so eventually Congress will realize that and, you know, NASA will start to do some of the really hard things. Like if we're really gonna go to Mars, transportation system is important, how you get there. But surviving the journey due to radiation, having power on the surface of Mars, having somewhere to live on the surface of Mars, having, having all these life support systems that have to be closed loop, those are all enormous challenges. And SpaceX could probably tackle them, but they're not thinking about those. They're focused on transportation. And so there's a lot of opportunity for NASA to do the hard stuff um, that that it's difficult for them to do because they're so focused right now on, on building a, a large rocket in the Orion spacecraft.
0: Eric Berger talking about Elon Musk and SpaceX as well as the future of the space program, and we'll be asking a bit about that in a moment. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm
1: Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. NASA's still trying to build their own giant rocket, the Space Launch System. Uh, SpaceX is building a, a larger rocket that will compete with that. How much has NASA spent so far in the 10 years since the space shuttle shut down? How much roughly have they spent without yet managing to get their rocket in the air?
2: So they spent about $20 billion on Designing, testing, and now asse- finally assembling the first space launch system rocket core stage. They spent about another five billion dollars on ground systems to support the launch of that rocket at Kennedy Space Center, and then they spent on the order of ten to twelve billion dollars on Orion.
1: And the Orion is a sort of like a, a super duper Apollo-style space capsule, right?
2: right. Orion is a, Orion is a a, a much larger version of Apollo can carry four astronauts comfortably. And it's a, it's a sophisticated vehicle. How far could it go? It can go, it can basically go to out to the lunar environment around the moon and back. It's designed to come return to earth at, at translunar velocities. Um, the, the problem with Orion besides the fact that it's pretty expensive is the fact that it's really heavy. So it's like 27 tons. Um, and, and that, is just a lot of mass to get, not just to get off the surface of the earth, but then to push that all the way to the moon is, um, is just, is, is just, it's really hard. It takes a very big rocket. And, and, and Orion is not a vehicle that you would send to Mars just because it's so small. And the, you know, your, your crew could not survive in that environment for that long.
0: NASA has learned a lot from years of experiments and research on the International Space Station. What should this government agency do in the future as it works alongside private companies such as SpaceX, Blue Origin, the company founded by Jeff Bezos, and
2: Virgin Galactic? So the, the answer to that is, is, is just to have an honest assessment of what are the capabilities that are in the private sector today, and then what what kinds of things are not being developed by the private sector or are at a low technology readiness level where NASA can spend the money and they have the they have the really smart engineers, but it would start with with this honest assessment of what can we buy and what do we need to develop ourselves, and the problem is that for the last decade, Congress, which is I mean they have they they're, they're representative of their people so it's their job to benefit their district but but congress is much more interested in how many jobs can this program provide for my district or my state versus what's you know what's in the best interest of this nation's space program or, or NASA.
1: So you're saying that for a congressperson who has uh, various you know facilities in their district a cheaper, more efficient, better way for NASA to get into space using private uh, companies like SpaceX is actually a minus because it means less pork coming back to their district.
2: That's right. I mean, <laughs> that 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 in essence, Jim is exactly right. Um, the 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 biggest supporters of the SLS are in states like Alabama, uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, Florida, um, where where uh, Utah, where components of that vehicle are made, and. They don't benefit from SpaceX because SpaceX does things more efficiently, a private sector, many fewer employees. Um, And so, yeah, they're a a net negative economically to their states. SLS is the
0: space launch system being developed at huge cost by NASA. That may be popular in Congress, but what should the Biden
2: administration do? So I have found that, that White House's Typically, are much more much less parochial than the congressional. So the Obama administration didn't really want the SLS rocket. Um, the Trump White House tried to steer funding away from it to other programs, um, but, but politically it was difficult to kill. And I think the Biden administration will continue that trend. They all have generally been supportive of commercial space because, like, when the White House Office of Management Budget looks at this and says, "You could buy a launch on this rocket for two hundred million, or you could." buy it on the government rocket for $2 billion, I mean, the numbers are pretty straightforward. And the, and the White House rec- has recognized that across partisan lines.
0: The Biden administration is going to launch a new NASA administrator soon.
2: Who's in the running for that? Um, there was a rumor about 10 days ago that former Democratic senator from Florida, Bill Nelson, um, was going to be named the administrator. He's in his late 70s. Um, kind of has a checkered reputation in the space industry because he sort of strong-armed his way onto the space shuttle as a congressman in 1986.
1: Oh, can I just interrupt for one second, Eric? Yes, please. Oh, yeah. So he got to fly on the space shuttle because, you know, he was a, a big wheel in Congress. What did the other crew members on that mission call him?
2: Well, his nickname was Ballast, which, is, <laughs> which they said was the role he played. I don't think Nelson was a big fan of that nickname, and it's not something anybody really says publicly. But yeah,
1: Nelson has not been a fan of these uh, private space ventures, though I gather. No,
2: he was one of the he, he was one of the initial creators in the Senate of the Space Launch System. So yeah,
0: in the future there will be a lot of manned spaceflight that doesn't involve NASA or space agencies in other countries. Tell us what the space
2: business might look like 20 years from now. Yeah, that future is actually fast coming upon us because potentially before the end of this year, four non-astronauts are going to be going up on the Inspiration4 mission inside a Crew Dragon spacecraft and and crew dragon is is made by crew dragon built by SpaceX launching on a Falcon 9 rocket and then Axiom Space has bought another mission on crew dragon that's going to have one former astronaut Michael Lopez-Alegría and then three three private astronauts and so with dragon coming along finally and it had its first human flight in the middle of last year we are starting to see the rise of this commercial space i think what you could see over the next decade is some kind of extension of industrial activity, either in low Earth orbit or on the surface of the moon um, as transportation costs come down.
1: So we talk a lot about Elon Musk and SpaceX because they're farthest out front, but there are a lot of, there are a number of billionaires building rockets. What's, can you give us a very quick thumbnail of of what's going on with the other leaders?
2: This is the most exciting time to write about and think about space in my lifetime because there's so much activity at NASA, as well as in the private sector, as well as internationally with China, Europe, Russia, Japan, all doing pretty interesting things in space. In the United States, the commercial sector has been extraordinarily active um, over the last decade. Um, Probably most notable is is Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin. They have really ambitious plans too, but they've moved much slower than SpaceX has. but they potentially over the next five years could really explode with a suborbital space tourism. So that's the thing where you get on a rocket, go up for about eight minutes, experience a few minutes of weightlessness, and then come back to Earth. And they're building a much larger rocket called New Glenn that could launch in a few years. And um, and, and they want to be part of NASA's return to the moon too. So they they're they're attempting to get some money to build a human lander for the surface of the moon. Um another company that's gotten a lot of attention is Virgin Galactic. That's by Sir Richard Branson. Um, he has a he has a plane a space plane essentially that is like a small six seater plane except it's got a rocket out the back and it, it sort of zooms you up into space and so it, it's, it's it's interesting to track.
1: Now speaking of test flights, as we record this today, there was a uh, what looks like might be now a scrubbed uh, test flight of um, of Musk's biggest rocket, his Mars rocket. Uh, tell us what's happening with that and why does musk feel that it's, it's time to build such a monstrous huge spacecraft for uh, a, a mission to mars that most people can barely conceive of
2: if you want to go to mars you have to take a lot of stuff that's fuel food water clothes i mean all kinds of things um and and so you've got to move a lot of mass there and Elon Musk doesn't want to just send four astronauts to the surface of Mars or six. He wants to send a settlement. He wants to have thousands of people living on the surface of Mars. And so he told me about a year ago that he had estimated back of the envelope that he needed to send one million tons to the surface of Mars for a viable human settlement. Well, if NASA completes development of the space launch system and it goes through two more upgrades, it can launch 130 tons to low earth orbit for $2 billion. And of that, if you get to low earth orbit, you still have to ahead and have eject that mass to Mars and land it. So each SLS rocket maybe could send 20 tons to the surface of Mars. So are you gonna spend trillions of dollars to, to do that? No, that, that, obviously that's not going to happen. So Musk decided that the only way to really do this is to develop a, a launch vehicle that was radically reusable. So tens if not hundreds of times and extremely cheap to launch. And so that's why he's putting all this effort into Starship. There's a booster stage too that they need to build and both the booster and that second stage, the Starship vehicle is reusable. And and that's unprecedented in the history of launch. And if, if they get it to work and that's still an if, although I suspect, you know, they've got very smart people there, that would be the necessary first step. To some kind of Mars mission.
0: In a previous podcast, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, the famous scientist, made a wonderful case to us on how do we fix it for manned spaceflight. How do we fire up people's imaginations, Eric? I mean, it's been 50 years since the Apollo missions when the world just looked up into the skies and was very excited about space. And it seems that
2: that excitement is really dissipated. While the space cadets among us, myself included, are very gung ho about human space exploration, the fact of the matter there isn't a huge reservoir of public will out there. And, and that that suggests to me that the only way NASA is really going to go to Mars if it's as part of some international organization and we're doing it for geopolitical reasons. So like we, we unite with China and Russia and Europe to have this global mission to Mars. The fact of the matter is, I believe there's only one real reason for humans to go into space. And that is that if as a species we are ultimately going to thrive, we need to grow beyond planet Earth. Um, something could happen to the planet. We you know the population growth could continue do we want to be a species that remains forever confined to earth or do we want to try to eventually go to planets around other stars and if you believe we ought to be heading toward that future we need to be learning how to settle other worlds and and the best place in our solar system although it's it's not at all hospitable is the surface of mars and so that's why musk is is pushing toward mars and um <clears throat> and that's you know so so i'm not sure the government's ultimately are going to lead the way on on human settlement. Um, But I do believe it's our, our destiny.
0: Thank you very much. This
2: has been great. It's been my pleasure. Next, before our conversation,
0: our recommendation. Jim, you have a recommendation this week.
1: Yeah, it's this great documentary that came out last year called My Octopus Teacher. It's about a South African filmmaker named Craig Foster who became obsessed with swimming in the kelp forest off of the, the beach where he lives. And in his adventures, he became acquainted with an octopus. He was able to film a lot of fascinating developments in this creature's life. And in the process, felt like he learned about, a lot about himself and the relationship between humans and nature.
0: My wife has seen it and told me I have to see it as well. So uh, you've got me hooked. Uh, From underwater to outer space, we go next to our conversation. This is an exciting story, Jim, about not only... The, lo- the unlikely liftoff of SpaceX, but also how much that it's done, how much Elon Musk and this relatively small band of people around him have done to change uh, the aeronautics industry and also to innovate in such remarkable ways. It reminds me a little bit of this amazing race that we've had uh, for a vaccine, which is now changing our lives as we speak.
1: Right. The private-public partnership, or the public-private partnership is the way most people say it, is such an effective tool for government to get big things done. If you look at how quickly the uh, the pharmaceutical companies were able to get these vaccines not just invented but manufactured. That's an incredibly challenging job. The, the, the timely infusion of government money to private companies was what made that work so well. And I think that's a good model in, in a lot of other areas, too. A lot of people say, you know, they say, well, it's either the free market or it's government. Sometimes there's things only government can do, but it can do them better if it relies on private companies to do some of the work.
0: Such an interesting debate moving forward, too, when you have, on the one hand, Congress, which wants pork money for its congressional districts and for its states, and then the national interest, which is very often
1: different. so NASA isn't a perfect model for a a government agency that does everything right. they've uh, they've wasted a lot of money over the years and a lot of lives, sadly. That said, they still do a lot of great work. And a lot of what NASA does is not manned space flight. You know, there's a rover on Mars today that is going to do incredible science. So NASA's got a lot of great people and they do a lot of great work, but they'll, they'll be at their best if, as he said, they focus on what they do best and, and then hire private companies to help them the areas where the private companies can work much more efficiently.
0: Right at the top of the show, Jim, you teased me and teased our listeners with a story about losing your wallet in a space capsule. So tell us
2: about that. Yeah,
1: yeah. This is back when I was the editor of Popper Mechanics. Uh, We were doing a big story on Elon Musk and and, uh, giving him our annual, what we called the Breakthrough Award. And uh, so I went out and, and interviewed him and they had what was then the current version. I think this is in 2012 of their dragon capsule. They were planning to carry people on this thing and they had a mock-up of it with, with seats and everything. And they invited me to get in. So I, I climbed in and as I'm climbing out of this awkward seat, cause you're pretty much lying flat on your back. I hear this noise is th- something drops out of my pocket and it's my wallet. And it just happens to slip into this thin little gap in the floor where um, the seat was anchored and fall into the lower reaches of this this capsule. So I, I had this I had this uh, vision of my wallet someday making it to uh, to Earth orbit. But did but you
0: did you ever get it back?
1: Fortunately, we were able to to just barely able. Like somebody with skinny hands was able to reach it down there and and fish it out.
0: <laughs> it's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies, and I'm Jim Meggs. And that's our show for today. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. This show is a production of Davies Content, and we work with companies and nonprofits to make podcasts. Check us out if you're interested at DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening.